0: morning,
1: Eric. Hey, good morning, Brian. How are you?
0: I'm doing fine. How are you this morning?
1: Doing pretty well. Thanks for uh, joining me today. And um, good morning, everybody. And so uh, this station is dedicated to, you know, the entrepreneurial journey. And so, uh, Brian, you're my first guest on this podcast, Uh, you know, and thanks for for, uh, joining to share your story about uh, your entrepreneurial journey. And, uh, you know, maybe we could start with sort of Telling us a little bit about, you know, how you got into the aesthetics market and, uh, you know, the the skincare uh, market that you've been serving for for quite some time.
0: Well, I'm excited to be with you this morning, Eric, and uh, looking forward to spending the time with you. Terrific. I I fell into the skincare market uh, by accident. I graduated from college with a finance accounting degree. Uh, looked out in the world at the jobs that were available to me when i as I graduated, and felt like i didn 't want to spend my life in a little cube out there at a big aid accounting firm.
1: I can uh, relate
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, just before graduation a, a entrepreneur uh, looked founding a company in uh, skincare, actually, and a topical product for that. Uh, reached out to the college I was attending, asked the business uh, leaders if they had a student that could help him take over or take on a company, and I, it looked a lot more interesting to me. Wore a, went out, bought a fancy suit to go to my first interview, sat down, really loved the gentleman, loved the opportunity, and uh, got the job was interesting walking out the door. He said, by the way, you'll never have to wear that suit again. <laughs> that sounded like the perfect job to me. Uh, so I uh, went home to uh, my wife. I said, well, I got a 20-hour-a-week job. on uh, working for a one-person startup, and uh, I'm so excited. She looked at me and uh, expected me to come back with a job, a 40-hour, hour week job with a bank or... Uh, some big eight accounting firm, and uh, I think she was a tad disappointed. But right, I started. Right. I started that following week, and never worked less than three hours. I'm loving every minute of it, being uh, sort of the right hand man to this entrepreneur, and raising twenty-five, twenty-six million dollars for this skincare company, and we grew it into uh, what turned out to be a. Uh, Know a well received company in the marketplace, sold it, and I moved on to my next uh, adventure, which what happened you, to be Oklahoma. Yeah, ahead, what year was that? That was in 1991. Okay. So, about five years after I joined Oklahoma uh, Pharmaceuticals, the company I was mentioning. And I was recruited out of Oklahoma Pharmaceuticals to be the general manager of a a company that made skincare products for people with sensitive skin and uh, really enjoyed that position. I, I grew that company significantly over three, four years, had a small staff, but was calling on, est- or not estheticians at the time, but dermatologists and providing products for them, for their clients, uh, patients with eczema and other skincare products. Prob- Products problems.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. So this this story actually begins about twenty seven years ago. Then, where you entered the the skincare market and uh, began doing fundraising and helping other people grow their companies.
0: Yeah. That is the case. That is so true. Um. So I, I you know, as three four years into that job, I was actually in Hawaii for a Hawaii dermatology conference. And as I was sitting in my booth selling my skincare products or promoting them, I heard a gentleman on the stage talking about the, the newest uh, technology they were bringing into the United States, how they were going to enable not only plastic surgeons, dermatologists, but estheticians to be able to dramatically improve the appearance and texture of Skin, people's skin. And the device that they were introducing to the United States was called a particle exfoliation machine. Uh, the technology had been in Europe, uh, as I found out, for many, for many years, but it was just being brought to the United States. And this was back in the mid 90s.
1: Okay.
0: You know, in, in my early days, I uh, had always dreamt of being an engineer. I uh, I wanted to build things I wanted to design things I uh spent a lot of time tinkering in my garage and this and that as a young young boy uh watched my parents my dad was a wood shop teacher so I had access to a lot of a lot of those type of tools I had a mother that was an entrepreneur as a real estate agent and really admired her and the the freedom uh with the long hours and dedication that I saw her put into that career Yep. Um early on, my parents got into real estate. My mom would find the the uh, gems out there, and my dad would go in there swinging a hammer and fixing them up, and they uh, soon created quite a real estate empire, had my father left teaching to focus full-time on that. So I had two parents at home that were full-time entrepreneurs and really admired uh, what they were doing and the lifestyle and the, and the fruits of their labor brought a fairly good lifestyle for us. So it was always in the back of my mind. Um, my, my dad being from, uh, the, the Midwest was pretty conservative guy. So he'd always tell me, Brian, do one thing and do it well. So i said, well, I'm going to be an engineer. I went off to engineering school and was loving that, but, uh, as things would have it, met the love of my life there at the engineering school, ended up getting married, having a baby, and having quite the uh, financial overhead to take care of. And engineering was quite a time uh, commitment with labs and those type of things. I had to step back and decide how I was going to support my family and support my education, and had to take a U-turn and head into I said business school uh, what's huh. the most What's the most technical part of business school? Well, that was finance and accounting. So, I became a finance accounting major, and spent the next four years uh, working on the side to support my family and going to school. Um, towards the end of my education, I was looking around trying to decide what I was going to do for a living full time, and looked at. The jobs that I was qualified for and at the time, the big eight accounting firms and some of the big corporations in the Bay Area, Clorox and Chevron and such, and had opportunities to interview with all of those. And as I visited those uh, businesses, I looked around, uh, realized that I was going to be spending eight, 10 hours a day sitting in a little cube working behind a computer, and it just something just didn't feel right. I think it was spending the last five, 10 years watching my parents with the freedom, financial and time freedoms that they had as entrepreneurs. So I, I, after spending four years in school, I still wasn't convinced that the the finance track, the conventional finance track was the way to go.
1: Well, I was right. Yeah. But it's education and you can, you know, once you get through it, you can carry it around with you for the rest of your life and whatever you do in business, Nobody's going to ever fool you about, uh, you know, cooking the books and whether or not the balance sheet balances, right?
0: It definitely gave me a firm foundation for, for my future and the businesses that I've been involved in since then. Absolutely. I guess I, I was saved by an uh, entrepreneur that had called the school looking for a student that wanted or a graduate that would come and be his right-hand man to start up a little pharmaceutical company. Jumped at the opportunity to interview, went out and spent $1,000, probably a month's worth of wages at that time on a beautiful suit to impress him. Yeah, I uh, spent the day interviewing and got the job. Well, actually, it was a 20-hour, you can only guarantee me 20 hours of work a week at a reasonable hourly wage, but that sounded much more attractive than some of the other jobs I was looking at full time. Yeah. I took the job. As I was walking out the door, the gentleman looked at me and said, you know, that'll be the last time you ever have to wear that suit. Well, <laughs> so I got to bring that suit back and gave me, uh, gave me some cash to get through the next few weeks.
1: Still a good investment, though.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, that's so fantastic. I, I came home to tell my wife about my new job. She was expecting me at Clorox or Chevron or a big eight accounting firm, I told her I took a 20 hour a week job with one other gentleman in a startup pharmaceutical company. I don't think she was too impressed with that. But I went to work the next following Monday, never worked less than 50 hours a week after that. And uh, we turned that company into a tremendous success. Gave me an opportunity to wear many hats, not just my accounting hat, but Operations, uh, em, uh, uh, insurance, you
1: know,
0: risk management. I worked with venture capital community,
1: fundraising.
0: Uh, absolutely, the fundraising side of the world, employee issues. You know, it was just the two of us uh, for for a long time. That grew into 125 people. So my role, uh, the hands-on role, diminished. But I really found that I enjoyed that the energy the emotions uh, of the startup environment. Did you
1: have some ownership in the, in the business or were you, how, how, how did that set up for you?
0: I did. I had an equity position in the business. Uh, It was not enough that it would set me up for life, but it was enough that I I felt, uh, I felt, well, I I felt like an owner. I felt like I was working towards something bigger than my paycheck and it got me hooked. Um, So, after four years, this would have been about uh, 1990, after about four years of working for this company, we uh, sold the company. Yes,
1: all right. So, let's carry on with the discussion about what happened after being acquired.
0: Sure. So, we sold O'Claassen Farm. I realized I was out of a job trying to decide uh, what to do with the rest of my life there. Um and didn't have any specific opportunity uh that would allow me to you know sort of continue along that entrepreneurial road at the moment well again, out of the blue, I was recruited by a company Allerderm Laboratories that happened to make skincare products for people with sensitive skin okay what year is that? That was in about 1991, 92. Okay. I joined Allerderm. I was a small company uh, that catered to the dermatologists and their patients. Uh, It was interesting because their patients would, sort of going through the classic pharmacy type of route, the dermatologists would prescribe our products and the patients would purchase them from us directly. So I... Got a little bit of feel and experience for direct sales over the internet to uh, to this marketplace and or the phone. Um, and after a year or so working with Allerderm Laboratories, I find myself in Hawaii at a Hawaii dermatology conference, listening uh, to some of the new products that were being announced into the United States. I... Uh, was watching the stage, and gentleman came up. He started talking about a product that uh, that most of the people in the attendance were very excited about. And I wasn't that familiar with it, but it turned out that this was the vice president of sales of Germogenesis. He was at the conference to introduce what most there of the skincare professionals seemed to think was the most exciting advance in skincare they'd seen in decades. Turns out that this was the introduction of microdermabrasion, or as they called it back in the day, particle microdermabrasion uh, to the United States. I thought, wow, this is, this is exciting stuff. This is a tool that dermatologists, estheticians could use to dramatically improve the, texture and appearance of individual skin, especially the estheticians that could do it because they really didn't have the tools available uh, back in those days uh, to provide any services other than a basic facial. So I was excited, thought it was a real interesting product, didn't think much of it, found myself down on the beach after the conference drinking my first Mai Tai of the day and started up a conversation with a gentleman that it turns out would change, change my life. Uh, the gentleman was the vice president of sales of Dermagenesis that was bringing this product into the United States, and Dermagenesis had realized that microdermabrasion was going to leave their clients uh, with irritated skin. You know, they slightly irritated, not you know, but that they were looking for a line of products, pre and post care products, that would optimize the procedure for their microdermabrasion clients. Right. Well, uh, working for Alloderm, turns out that's exactly the type of products that I had formulated and was selling. So by the end of the evening, I had agreed to formulate a line of specialty products for Dermagenesis. Uh, so over the next few months, went back to work and formulating these creams and lotions, cleansers and sunscreens that were designed to not to irritate people's skin after they'd been abraded, and uh, um, and at, you know, while talking to them about this opportunity, it became evident that dermogenesis wanted just to focus on the medical markets here in the United States. But they had a competitor that was coming in, that was Power Peel that was calling on both the aesthetic and the medical marketplace. So we talked a little bit, and uh, they ended up offering me the opportunity to take their microdermabrasion machine, private label it, and sell it into the aesthetic marketplace while they focused on the medical marketplace. Ah. To keep their competitor, PowerPeel, on its heels
1: well that sounds like a pretty solid business opportunity what was your sense of the marketplace at that time was it uh you know was it an underserved market in this regard or completely like blue ocean like nobody had anything at this point you're trying to train them on the value proposition of microdermabrasion or you know sort of where did that sit with people how did how did they you know understand uh in the beginning how this could benefit them or what the you know value proposition was
0: Back in the early 90s, very few people had even heard of microdermabrasion. So this was a wide open field. And Dermogenesis and Power Peel had patents on these devices. So there wasn't even a lot of competition expected in the marketplace. So I was in a wonderful position of having a company making the machine for me. I didn't have to invest in the infrastructure, or design or support. I got to put my name on it, and focus on a market that was begging for the technology. So we call that uh, the
1: Dermaglow One then?
0: That was the Dermaglow One. Okay. Dermagenesis called their product the Dermapeel. They sold the same machine uh, into the medical market under a different, under the different name. So it was my Dermaglow, their Dermapeel. That's right. Okay. So soon after, I was selling and supporting many millions of dollars worth of devices a year here in the United States. Uh, I had a thriving company. Dermagenesis was doing well. Uh, and people were gobbling the machines up as fast as we could make them. That's a um, great
1: story. Yeah.
0: Uh, and I, I met, you know, that was my introduction into the aesthetic marketplace. I had moved from calling on dermatologists to estheticians. The interesting thing about microdermabrasion Prior to microdermabrasion, the estheticians really didn't have, other than say chemical peels, didn't have the tools to make dramatic changes to people's skin. Dermatologists could do it, but the estheticians uh, weren't able to use the lasers and the other tools that could uh, provide those type of results. Uh, Introducing microdermabrasion to the market really changed the market in many ways. Estheticians could buy a microderm and offer services that were never hadn't been offered in the past, or it gave doctors an opportunity to hire estheticians and put them to work doing microdermabrasion in their clinics. So it really it, yeah, expanded the opportunities for estheticians here in the United States, and I think it expanded the opportunities for dermatologists to grow their businesses beyond their capabilities they didn't have to do every procedure they could hire estheticians to do the procedures and ah fantastic
1: that was a great uh you know history on how this you know really this new market had had been born back in the early 90s and creating this wonderful opportunity for estheticians to you know, expand their practices and for them to join medical practices and, you know, further legitimize that profession and expand the, really the opportunity for consumers to get more um, from, you know, these practitioners that previously were somewhat limited with this, you know, this technology. So the, you told us how the Dermaglow 1 was born and, uh, you know, maybe I guess uh, carry on from there.
0: Well, you know, the Dermaglow, as I mentioned, so we were many, many machines out there into the aesthetic marketplace. Uh, You know, we're talking to many estheticians. I probably met most of uh, you there out in the audience in Las Vegas and Miami and Long Beach and most of the trade shows that we were busy attending on an annual basis. Uh, The Dermaglow I was selling, Dermaglow 1, was a fantastic machine, Um, but I I really didn't have much input into the design. The design uh, was based on the Italian patents and very similar to the power peel machine that was in the market. Um, but I was the one on the front row that had to, That was taking the calls when the estheticians were calling if their machine was broken or clogged or wasn't working quite, quite right. I saw that there was plenty of room for improvement in the Dermaglow One, but it was the best there was in the marketplace, and uh, so I focused on selling it out there. Um, But within a year, cheap knockoffs uh, started showing up in the marketplace. These machines were being imported from Asia and all over the world. Actually, many of them were even being built in people's garages. They saw this great opportunity, high margins, great demand, uh, and you know, it was only going to take off in the United States. Um, unfortunately, many of these units, most of these units uh, weren't built for the task. they were they looked like they looked apart, but they were underpowered. they weren't desired uh, des- designed for the rigors of the job. They looked like the most expensive machines, more expensive machines, but they were cheap and they created a lot of confusion in the marketplace. Can you imagine how, spending thousands of dollars on a machine uh, and being working on a a client and the machine stops working. Well, you're having a very unhappy client. You're not going to get your your revenue and you're not going to get many referrals from that. Um, So I spent most of my days taking phone calls from estheticians, not necessarily with the Dermaglow One, but uh, other people's machines out there in the world asked they're looking for help the stories were all the same they had purchased one of these cheap microdermabrasion machines it wasn't working it was broken clogged all the time didn't have enough power worst of all there was no one there to call when they tried to get them fixed so most of these machines were just imported from asia nobody knew how they worked why they worked and uh, they just became very expensive door stops so when they couldn't find anybody else to call they called me well ultimately uh, this influx of low-cost machines uh, drove Dermogenesis and Power Peel out of business. They had so much money invested in their, their infrastructure and their support that when these cheap machines came in that were being sold for less than Dermogenesis and Power Peel could build their machines, there was just no way they could compete. People didn't differentiate between the cheap ones and the expensive ones or the, the quality units until it was too late. Well, here I was, 40 years old, newly married, had a baby on the way, and the business that I invested my entire life in was about to go away. When Dermagenesis went under, I had an inventory of about 50 of these machines, and there weren't going to be any other machines coming my way. fortunately, I had seen uh, the writing on the wall a bit earlier. I kept my overhead low and began the development of my own microdermabrasion design. As you remember, I was a frustrated engineer at the start and from my heart. So I had spent the past two years listening, seeing all the problems with these machines out there and uh, all the, the problems firsthand with the microdermabrasion units on the market. So... In my head, I had designed what I considered to be the ultimate microdermabrasion machine. So over the next six months, while my dwindling inventory of Dermaglow ones was getting smaller and smaller and smaller, I worked with many of the world's best engineers and designers and created what uh, most consider to be the best microdermabrasion device ever built microdermabrasion device that overcame all those limitations that the users were seeing with the machines before it and that was the dermaglow 2 it was born
1: and what year is that now
0: that was in about 2000
1: okay so around 1998 you were sort of seeing the writing on the wall and you'd already been involved with the business a few years so you had You know, seeing the, you know, challenges in the marketplace and uh, confusion in the marketplace and still a growing market and opportunity. But yet the the guys that had the patents and had the proper technology and were serving the market at the highest level couldn't compete at, you know, the low price points. And so they were going away. Your job was going away. And ultimately, you were able to see that coming, design a new machine with your, you know, engineering prowess and uh, ultimately Put yourself in a position to continue to serve the market once uh, you know sort of the the air had cleared. Is that a, a fair assessment?
0: I think that's a very accurate assessment. Exactly. So I uh, I stepped back, created the Dermaglow Two, but I had the same problem that Dermagenesis and Power Peel had had. How do you differentiate your product in a market of lookalikes? You know, there is all kinds of dis- disinformation uh, put into the marketplace, all kinds of confusion. You know, I, I had to figure out how do you convince buyers to consider a professional device to buy the right tool for their job, for their career uh, at, in, at a price point where my machines cost more to build than the machines on the market cost that we're, we're selling for. Right. Um, it was a bit of a challenge you know and I looked around and I realized God what well, these people are spending this is you know potentially one of their largest uh, investments that they make in their business of these machines and a lot of them are being burned they're ending up spending you know even these thousands of dollars and ending up with units that one, break, clog, but two, don't perform as people were expecting. Just because it looks like a microdermabrasion device on the outside and it's running crystals through the handpiece doesn't mean it's providing the procedure that made microdermabrasion so popular. Right. So my answer was to just redouble my efforts on making this a device that was so powerful, so reliable, so functional that I could afford to offer a lifetime warranty on the product and not only provide a lifetime warranty, but provide the technical services and support that no other microdermabrasion could. And at that point, I introduced the Dermaglow 2 at the International Congress of Aesthetics show in Miami. This was beginning of 2000, uh, the year 2000.
1: Okay. Terrific. And so how, how was that received? And people, understand that you were you know taking the game up that you know your machine is performing at a higher level and you've got you know a position in the market obviously at some point and you've got people using the machine and you know these people talk are they you know sharing this kind of information or are they holding it as competitive advantage or you know how, how does that play out
0: you know i yes i there is definitely a subset of the market that understood and appreciated the value of the dermaglow Two. remember back in 2000 the tools available to us to tell our story were really a flat web page and trade magazines. So we could reach a few people at the trade shows. We went to seven to 10 trade shows a year. And as we were, as people that were in the business, making money, professional estheticians that appreciated the value and the, and, and the support that we offered, we were very successful. Uh, and remember, when I got into the business, I was only allowed to sell to the aesthetic marketplace. When I came out with my Dermaglow 2 and when Dermagenesis went out of business, that, that allowed me to also call on the medical marketplace. Right? So my potential market more than doubled, but my marketing tools were relatively limited back into 2002. But the, the machine was well-received. Well we sold, sold many hundreds, thousands of machines, not only in the United States, but the machine gained uh, uh, interest from other countries. We have machines in Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Australia, all through Central and South America. The beauty of these machines, because they're built so solid, so reliable, that people could trust it that they didn't need to have someone around the uh, right around the corner to send it in to fix it. Right.
1: Right. Isn't that interesting though? So, you know, this, this longstanding, you know, footprint we'll call it in the marketplace of estheticians around the world. Um, you know, I mean, there's no perfect technology or machine, I think probably, there's some level of failure that happens just because people probably drop it on its head or, you know, kick it or, you know, something happens and it breaks or they need help somewhere. But there's what is the instance of, you know, these longstanding, you know, machines in the market actually being returned and, or asking for some sort of technical support or replacement parts or help? How does that shape up 20 years later or 18 years later?
0: Sure. And again, I have machines that are 20 years old out there under lifetime warranty. They're still kicking in uh, client's hands cuz they were built to built to last. You're right. There are anytime you're running a super abrasive crystal like an aluminum oxide crystal through one of these machines, you're going to have issues. It's like taking a piece of sandpaper through the innards of a you know, of a device for these 20 years. Things wear out. Uh, we designed the dermoglue 2 So that the obvious parts that would wear out could be replaced in the field. Um, So we have little quick release fittings that are designed to wear instead of like many of the cheaper machines had little metal fittings that would wear out and the machine would become useless at that. We have filters and backup filters that if crystals migrate in the wrong places or somebody puts the crystals in the wrong places that they're caught and they're taken care of. But we do see a few machines back here. Recently, we received a machine that went through a hurricane, and <laughs> yeah, it had uh, taken on water up to the faceplate. And uh, unfortunately, we couldn't repair that machine. Salt water does significant damage to them. But we uh, we were able to find a solution for that client and get them back into business very quickly. We, in addition to our, you know, selling a fantastic machine, we have a Uh, A loaner program where we can quickly get our clients uh, microdermabrasion machines the next day, if necessary, so that they can continue to meet their uh, commitments to their clients and
1: keep them in business. Right, right. And that's Uh, just, you know, such peace of mind for anybody buying any product to know that, you know, you've got a Mercedes or a Rolls Royce of, you know, this particular machine, that's really the backbone of your business. You need to know how to administer the treatments and have some training and professional, you know, capabilities there. But ultimately, the machine needs to be reliable or you can't perform the service. So, um, absolutely, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's really great for our audience to, to, to know and understand.
0: Just as important, I think, is that when they do have problems, if they have problems, they can pick up a phone, dial our 800 number and get a live voice in my technical services department. Mike, my technical services manager, has been doing this now for almost 20 years. Lives and breathes microdermabrasion devices. And 95% of the time, maybe 99% of the time, if someone has a problem, they can fix it right there over the phone. That's where that experience comes in. Uh, unlike again our competitors, where there really is no one to call, you're not going to call Amazon to ask them how to fix your machine. You're not going to call it the Asian company that made it to to get it fixed. So I think we really have found the sweet spot for the professional esthetician that makes their living as with microneedling. Right,
1: and there's some other advantages to buying the dermaglow from what i understand i mean the crystals and the replacement parts and the other things once you once you own the machine you also have access to these really robust part replacements as needed and of course the crystals the most one of the most important aspects of this as i am understanding it is to you know have the um you know the best crystals and there's some distinguishing points there is there not
0: yeah it's interesting most people when their machines clog in the marketplace they blame the machine But there is a huge difference in the quality of crystals that are marketed out there. Here at Aesthetic Solutions Dermaglow, we source our crystals from uh, a mine in Hungary. These are aluminum oxide crystals. They're natural, uh, hard crystals. They're almost as hard as diamonds. They're actually a form of ruby. They're non-water soluble. And the manufacturing process we use makes a very consistent particle size and shape that gives you a reproducible treatment every time you do a microdermabrasion treatment. A lot of the crystals you'll see on the marketplace might be a few cents less expensive, but they're sourced from again from China and other mines and these crystals can have a high level of contaminants in them. They can have heavy metals, they can have all kinds of crazy things, or more importantly they can they have moisture Moisture is the bane of existence of aluminum oxide crystals in microdermabrasion machines because that moisture makes, allows the crystals to stick together. And when the crystals stick together, they don't pass through the little metering orifices uh, in these microdermabrasion machines. So you're absolutely right. The, sourcing a high-quality crystal, using a high-quality crystal Pays for itself many times over in the microdermabrasion procedure. As we mentioned, we use aluminum oxide crystals, but the Dermaglobe 2 was actually designed to use other crystals as well. We can use sodium bicarbonate, salt, and we're working on some other crystals that might offer uh, increased benefits to the client as well. Interesting.
1: So it's not so um, confusing for us to understand why there is confusion in the market because there's these little nuances. And, you know, if you if you don't understand the nuances, it's really hard to understand the problems that might be caused as you go along, depending on the machine and the power and the, all the other elements that are important in producing reliable treatment.
0: Absolutely. And there was actually a lot of disinformation put into the marketplace early on as well. People making all kinds of crazy claims. One of the, you know, the earlier claims was that, Aluminum oxide crystals uh, could cause health problems, and the, the, the story was based on a clinical study on aluminum miners some 30 years ago, and that these aluminum miners would come out of the mines with lung issues, and that it was the aluminum that caused the problem. Well, what people didn't realize is that there is no aluminum in aluminum oxide. Aluminum oxide is the oxide; is the crystal that forms on aluminum. So it's a very, very different product. But that's forced. Or that's got people thinking.
1: So, Brian, that was a, a great, you know, introduction to the market that uh, you've been serving for a long time, and uh, the introduction of Dermaglo Two. I guess if we could continue in that vein talking about, uh, you know, how the go-to-market strategy evolved and, you know, some of the challenges that we you know, know existed, you know, 10 and 15 years ago. And uh, ultimately, you know, the market's changed. We've got new mediums of uh, communicating with our audience and, uh, you know, other, you know, tactics and capabilities to uh, get our message out. So maybe just sort of take us through that. Sure. Well,
0: as we left off, You know, the Dermaglow was being widely accepted in the United States and through the rest of the world. Remember, this is back, again, in early uh, the 2000s. So the tools we had available to us were basically direct mail, a little bit of email. Most of our customers at that point didn't even have email. We had our trade publication. And my challenge, again, was to uh, educate the esthetician on... Microdermabrasion, and we're still you know, teaching people about microdermabrasion, but also helping to differentiate uh, quality machines from uh, the other devices that were in the marketplace that were causing trouble. Right. I, uh, you know, as I mentioned, I attended a lot of trade shows, seven to ten trade shows a year, and I talked to a lot of my customers and other people's customers uh, at those shows and tried to learn as much as I could about their businesses and what they needed. And one thing I kept hearing was people love my machine, but they're having trouble finding people to run them. That always stuck in uh, the back of my head. Uh, They needed to figure out how to build uh, esthetician skincare professionals uh, that appreciated what microdermabrasion could do for the market and their businesses.
1: Right, right.
0: You know, Early on, soon after that, I was introduced to an opportunity through Paul Mitchell. Paul Mitchell was just starting to open beauty schools in Texas uh, and in Utah in the country. And I had an opportunity to open Paul Mitchell Beauty Schools in California. And I thought that to be the perfect opportunity to actually create, get in the people business and create estheticians uh, to fill these spots that my customers with the machine uh, were looking for. So about 2005, I opened my first Paul Mitchell Beauty School in Sacramento, California. Now, Paul Mitchell at the time wasn't well known uh, as a skincare company, more of a hair care company, but they had partnered with Dermalogica on the aesthetic side of the world, I opened a school that focused on both aesthetics and cosmetology.
1: So again, so this is, I guess, an evolution in the beauty school industry to not just be focused on hair care and color and those kind of uh, practices, but also the aesthetics, which I guess probably isn't happening everywhere. I'm assuming.
0: Right. Yes. And it's interesting because it's very specific state by state, the tools that, cosmetologists and or estheticians are able to use. In California, a cosmetologist has training in skin care as well. So technically, they can use microdermabrasion systems and other skincare uh, protocols as well. Most don't. They focus on hair only. But my concept was that if they were going to be going to school for 1,600, 2,000 hours, they were – Able to do skincare, why not teach them the full gamut of aesthetic practices that are available? So we really focused on the aesthetic program and our cosmetologists benefited from it. Hi, Eric.
1: So this whole plan of yours is coming together very nicely, it seems, with uh, sort of this vertically integrated idea you've got to, you know, bring the market. Uh, around with estheticians through the beauty schools that ultimately on your product and, uh, you know, and, and ultimately giving them a, a bigger opportunity in the market. Is that a fair assessment?
0: I do. You know, I think, again, my strategy was to open the aesthetic department, get my microdermabrator in that department and start building users that were familiar with the Dermaglow Advantage. What I quickly found, uh, as a bonus, was that by promoting microdermabrasion in my beauty school, uh, that it made it, my program much more popular than the competing programs in the marketplace. Estheticians appreciated having the access to a microdermabrasion device that was going to really elevate their skill set in the marketplace. You know, up until that point, primary focus of estheticians was facial uh, acne and some of those type of issues. Uh, but microdermabrasion becoming more and more demand out there in the marketplace, uh, having that skill set really set would set them apart. So our aesthetic program grew very very rapidly.
1: Yeah, well, and I guess you know when somebody looks at that market opportunity and as it exists today, I understand it to be the fourth most requested treatment uh, for skin care in the country, which is hundreds of millions of dollars. And ultimately, what we've seen in practice is that estheticians quite routinely are able to achieve $100,000 plus incomes as a result. Does, does that line up with your understanding?
0: It is. It's the fourth most requested non-invasive procedure in the marketplace, but behind Botox and some of the laser procedures out there. Uh, it's becoming more and more popular, as you mentioned, generating hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue uh, just in the United States alone.
1: Brian, so that's really amazing, right? As an entrepreneur, how, you know, you identify one problem, you solve the problem, and out pops another opportunity as you're identifying now with this beauty school esthetician program. Tell us more about what, where, where that led you.
0: Well, so we were doing fantastic in the beauty school, uh, the aesthetic and the cosmetology side of the world. We were training uh, new users. They're all becoming uh, familiar with Dermaglow and hoping that that was going to you know, build a large following in the future uh, and realized why not take this program out into the marketplace. So at that point, mid-2006, six seven. Uh, built a group that reached out through telemarketing to the be- other beauty schools in the country. We called it our Dermaglow Partnership Program, where we were looking to put microdermabrasion devices in other schools and allow them to build their aesthetic practices around those microdermabrasion devices. Uh, the Dermaglow Partnership Program was we would provide the schools with a discounted microdermabrasion machine, but we'd also provide them with uh, the training material uh, to support the machine. Uh, as the estheticians graduated, we provide them with a certificate that they could bring to their uh, potential employers to show to be a proof that they have the training necessary to provide this procedure. And we supply them with discount coupons that the esthetician, if they chose to, could use to buy a microdermabrasion device as they graduate and go out on their own. Or they could pass that coupon on to their employer uh, to allow that business to bring a microdermabrasion in, machine in maybe at a lower price uh, than they normally would have. And that program became a huge success. And over the past five, six years, The Dermaglow Partnership Program has graduated many hundreds, if not thousands, of estheticians now in the market that are trained in Dermaglow, appreciate the Dermaglow advantage, and can go in and take their place uh, either as an independent esthetician or fit right into the med spa or other uh, spa out there in the marketplace where they can provide the procedure.
1: Yeah, that makes good sense. And uh, the skills are transferable once you, I presume, know the practice and uh, the, you know, techniques of operating a, a, a machine, you're not limited to the Dermaglow. You could still go operate other equipment, but ultimately you've fulfilled your own uh, need to, you know, ultimately have trained estheticians that do work with the Dermaglow and probably are leaning more towards that than other machines.
0: Interestingly enough, I think most of our uh, contacts these days are from businesses that have a Dermaglow partnership program trainee in it, that either they came to work and they realized that the machine that was currently in that practice was totally inadequate, or they're convincing their employer to take on Microderm as a revenue source and are completely bought into the how the dermaglow device uh not only its reliability and low maintenance but the procedure that it provides uh, is heads or tail better than any other machine out in the marketplace so yes most of our referrals these days come from dermaglow partnership uh graduates or those that already have the machines
1: uh, perfect So in your assessment, where, where is the market today, and what's, what's the opportunity for estheticians?
0: I think in the United States, you know, historically, unlike Europe, where the estheticians were very, very highly regarded, almost uh, at an equal level with doctors, the dermatologists in the marketplace, and practiced at a very high level, historically, aesthetics has taken a bit of a back seat to the dermatology practices, uh, in the dermatologist world with lasers and some of the tools that they have available to them that the estheticians hadn't historically had. I think over the past five, seven years, that's changed. I think that the esthetician in the United States is, uh, is being able to use many more powerful tools. I think microdermabrasion was the lead to that, but in a lot of states now, estheticians can use lasers and, and more invasive procedures that they haven't been able to do in the past. Um, and I think that's only going to grow. I think the advent of the medispa or the doctor, the dermatologist, plastic surgeon, even dentists these days looking for fee for service revenue opportunities because their businesses are being, uh, so constrained by insurance, uh, issues that the doctors are looking for ways to make money. And one of the key ways to do that is to open these for service cosmetic uh, offices, and those offices are generally staffed by highly trained estheticians. And the derma, as, as those estheticians find their way into these uh, medi spas and day spas, they're bringing the derma with them. Well,
1: that's fantastic, you know. And I, I know I've referred to you in the past as you know, one of the early pioneers, if not the grandfather of microdermabrasion in the United States, uh, all the work that you've done in the industry over 30 years, uh, you know, and all that, you know, you've seen with the market and how it's evolved and changed over this time frame, you know, uh, uh, kudos, man. I mean, really, uh, what a great, uh, you know, journey and, uh, you know, what a what a market to serve, right? I mean, there are thousands, tens of thousands of doctors and estheticians and others that are Benefiting from you know the great engineering work that you've done to bring these devices to market, you know help build up the supply chain, if you will, of people and resources to deliver this service to you know the the, the you know consumer market. And so, um, I think the market, as I understand it, continues to grow, and it seems really exciting to me that you know we've got this these mediums now that we can share this message and continue to you know provide education to. You know anybody that really wants to understand what the opportunity is in the you know aesthetician and medical markets for microdermabrasion um you know let the confusion dissipate let's uh, not get confused anymore that there are you know devices that perform well versus those that do not and it is unfortunate in the united states that you know consumerism is such that people think that you know we're, we're, you know price is more important than quality and you know ultimately you get what you pay for. So uh, it seems like we've got a a great opportunity now to, you know, continue, you know, in this uh, uh, market and continue to, you know, help the estheticians and the doctors and anybody else, as you point out, that wants to make a difference uh, in their practice and add additional revenue streams, it's it's readily available. Sorry if that was a bit (laughs) long-winded. Well,
0: Eric, one of the things I found is I, As I got the schools on their feet, I opened another school in San Jose and we were soon graduating about a thousand estheticians and cosmetologists a year here just in California. I I came back to Aesthetic Solutions ready to turn my attention back to Dermaglow and what I could do directly with uh, the Dermaglow owners and, and look at the market. And what I found is that the tools had changed dramatically where back in the early 2000s, as I mentioned, we had trade magazines, we had email, we had the phone, telemarketing. When I came back, I realized that now we have social. the advent of social media. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Google, uh, AdWords, and other Taken me a year or so to really get my feet underneath me and try to understand these new tools and how we might put them to work spreading the word for Dermaglow. I think this podcast is one of the beginnings of that. Uh, but we're also looking at how to use all the other tools to grow our business here in the United States and the rest of the world. Uh, what's interesting is I think many of these tools are ideally suited for use by the esthetician, uh, med spa, day spa, doctors to drive more clients and customers into their business. And one of the things we're working on here at Dermaglow is the addition of Dermaglow Digital, which I view as a tool, a resource for a Dermaglow client. Uh, that we can work with them to employ these tools that they might not necessarily have available or even know that are available to them but work with them to reach their customer base and grow their businesses and work with them grow together with Dermaglow uh, as we go into the future.
1: Yeah, right. So there's a vested interest uh in, you know, anybody buying a Dermaglow, you know, machine from Aesthetic Solutions to ultimately you know, allow us to help them be successful in the market once they've got their machine and opening up maybe their, you know, their first practice, or if it's an existing practice, you know, at a local level, helping them, you know, keep that client flow moving through the doors and and steadily and, and help them grow their practices. So, yeah, you're right with all the social media capabilities and, you know, really the technology capabilities that have come to bear in the last few years, even uh, the idea is to synthesize that and uh, help everybody do more business. So, yeah, I see that, that as a great value.
0: And you know, we see microdermabrasion as a solid foundation for an aesthetic practice. But with new technologies hitting the market every day, we're keeping our eyes open uh, for the best of those technologies and how we might be able to add value to them, make them a better tool, a right tool, more effective in the hands of an esthetician so that they can have products that either work in conjunction with microdermabrasion or other tools that they can use uh, to provide uh, benefit to the clients that they're bringing into their practice. We're looking to work with the esthetician, the doctor, dermatologist, plastic surgeon, dentist, uh, to, to really grow their aesthetic practice in the market.
1: Yep, no, that makes a ton of sense, you know, uh, really a business in a box concept. But, you know, maybe we'll save that for uh, the next episode.
0: Fantastic.
1: Well, Brian, thanks so much for being here and sharing again, uh, you know, the direction of Dermaglow and Aesthetic Solutions and uh, all that's going to come with uh, helping our customer base uh, do more business. So until uh, next time, folks, uh, talk soon. Thank you.